Since salvation is a matter of God's free grace, we do not earn it by working to obtain it. It is a gift, not something owed to us. We receive our inheritance from God the same way Abraham received it, by faith. We simply believe that God will make good on His promise to save us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we act on our faith, living like the true heirs of God that we have become through His covenant in Christ. This is the grace of God, that He does not deal with us on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of His promise. No matter what we have done, our sins are covered by the covenant righteousness of Christ. And now that we are in Christ, our standing before God does not fluctuate with the inconsistency of our daily obedience or disobedience. On the basis of the promise that He made before the law, God loves us with an unconditional love. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez concludes his exposition of Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Let's open again to Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So we looked at verse 15 earlier this morning and mentioned the fact that the covenant that God has made with Abraham is permanent and irrevocable. So we talked about the permanence of this covenant. It's a covenant that will not be annulled or ratified or changed or modified in any way. But what is this have to do, and here's where we start getting into how this applies now to us. When you read what Paul has been saying, what does this have to do with the Galatians? And by extension, what does this have to do with us? Well, Paul answers this question by identifying the party to the covenant. Look at verse 16. Now the promise, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. We see here, again, that Paul is a, uh, a meticulous, a very careful student of the Old Testament. God repeated his promises to Abraham on several occasions, and he often made his promise to Abraham's offspring as well as to Abraham itself. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Then if you were to look further up in Genesis verse, uh, chapter 13 and verse 15, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And then in Genesis 24, 7, he says to your offspring, I will give this land. So in Galatians... Paul wishes to emphasize about the word offspring that it occurs in the singular. The Bible says offspring, not offsprings. It's interesting as a side note here, because I think, you know, again, when we read through these passages of Scripture, we, we tend to, to lose 
uh, some important points that are not only being made by the author, but also important points about the author himself. Just as a side note, it's interesting. We see here that Paul teaches something very important about the authority of Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, he's resting his case on the ending of a noun. How could he make such a precise point about something from the Hebrew text of the Old Testament unless he believed that the Bible was indeed the Word of God written? Clearly, Paul believed, based on the fact that he's making his case on the ending of a noun, clearly Paul obviously believed that the Bible was the infallible and inerrant Word of God from beginning to end. Clearly, Paul doesn't struggle with understanding the doctrine of infallibility and inerrancy and inspiration. He looks at a text in the Old Testament, and his entire point hinges on the very letters that make up the word in that text. And that's not only true of Paul, because if you look at some of the other New Testament authors, you will find that they also paid careful attention, not only to the grammar of a text, but to the context of which the passages they quote come from, and how they're used in their original context. This is a perfect example of that. Paul knew full well, for example, that offspring was a collective noun. In fact, he uses it in that way in other areas. In this very same chapter, in verse 29, he uses that noun in that sense. He also knew that the offspring God promised to Abraham would be as numerous as the sand and the stars. But Paul wanted to explain that God's covenant promises refer to someone in particular. In Galatians 3.16, he's not so much making an argument based on Old Testament grammar as much as he's explaining what the Old Testament really means. And the promise of the offspring referred first of all to Abraham's son, Isaac. Ultimately, it referred to all of God's children, but especially to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, Paul tells us, is the true offspring. He is the party to the covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant was all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It looked forward to his coming. And this is why Paul could claim just a few few verses earlier, in verse 8, that the Scripture, and I quote, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What God promised to Abraham was the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in him that all nations on earth are blessed. So this shows how God's covenant with Abraham has something to do with us. Again, the question I started with was, what did this all mean to the Galatians, and what does it all mean to us? Where the connection to us is made right here. As Paul explained earlier in the chapter, we do not have to be biologically related to Abraham in order to be or to claim his inheritance. What he does say is that all we need is faith in Jesus Christ. The true sons of Abraham are not identified biologically. They are identified Christologically. So the covenant promise was really for Christ, and when we belong to Christ, here's the connection, the promise belongs to who? Us. Once we understand that God's promise to Abraham is a promise to Christ, the fact that the word offspring is a collective noun, 
makes perfect sense to us. A collective noun can refer either to an individual person or to a group of individuals or both. And we see that used in Scripture that way. So it is with the offspring of Abraham. The promise refers first of all to a single individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it also refers to a collection of individuals, namely who? All of us who belong to Christ. All of us who are in Christ. The party to the covenant is Christ. And all who are in him, don't miss that. God gave the promise to Abraham. The promise was Christ. And since we are in Christ, that promise is for us. And that's why we're grateful that not only was the covenant promise made, but it's a covenant promise that is permanent and irrevocable. One, uh, in the words of one uh, scholar, he says, the promises made, by, uh, made to Abraham are first made to Christ and then in Christ to all that believe in him, close quote. So here we are reminded again of the doctrine of union with Christ. And we can't miss that. We can't miss what it is that we have because of our union with Christ, because of the fact that we are in Christ once we are saved by grace through faith. So here we are reminded again of the doctrine of union with Christ, which is so central to Galatians and to Paul's theology in general. The Christian is in Christ. We participate in him. By faith, we are incorporated into him. We have covenant solidarity with him. We are so united to Christ that what is his becomes ours. Again, that scholar says, I quote, the right way to obtain any blessing of God is first to receive the promise. And in the promise, Christ and Christ being ours in him and from him, we shall receive all things necessary, close quote. It's almost as if there is only really one party in the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is exactly what the Galatians, and this is exactly what the church today is losing. They're forgetting that by trusting, in the case of the Galatians, that by trusting the works of the law, they were dividing the church along racial lines. On one side, you had the Jews, and on the other side, you had the Gentiles. They were not united in Christ if you adopted the theology of the Judaizers. And it's the same in the modern church today. Paul used the promise of the offspring, therefore, to remind them and to remind us that God's eternal plan is for one family in one Christ. There's no division. There's no separation. By the time he gets to the end of chapter 3, this will be the climax of his argument. Look at verse 26 of chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are what? All sons of God through faith. And then if you go to verse 29, he says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, according to what? Promise. That's the, that's the link to us. We are heirs of promise, according to promise. If you looked at the last eight or last 15 verses of chapter 3, and I'm not going to read them, but you're going to find that the word promise is a key word in this chapter. In the last 15 verses, I think you will find the word promise 
found eight times in those 15 verses. What Paul says about the promise of the covenant is that it comes before the law. And remember what the Judaizers were advocating, that in order for you to become a Christian, you had to essentially first become a Jew. You had to observe the law. And now Paul goes into explaining and making the difference between the promise and the law. So b- before we get into that, let's just quickly review what we've seen in, in verses 15 and 16 in a sentence. Verse 15 described the permanence of the law, or of the covenant, I'm sorry. It described the permanence of the covenant, which was established once for all when God gave it to Abraham. And in verse 16, we identified the party to the covenant. God's promise to Abraham was also made to Christ and to everyone, listen, and to everyone who is in him. Are you in Christ? If you are, then this promise involves you. And next, Paul clarifies the promise of the covenant. Look at verse 17. Look at what he says in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not, remember what the Judaizers are saying, it does. Paul says it doesn't. It does. It doesn't. Does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see, the problem was that the Galatians were allowing themselves to be persuaded and influenced by the theology of the Judaizers. And when they were accepting or adopting and thus propagating the theology of the Judaizers, they were essentially nullifying the promise. The promise and the law are two separate, though complementary, arrangements. The problem is they were failing to keep them as two separate yet complementary arrangements. They both operate, the promise and the law, they both operate on different principles. One operates on faith, the other one operates on works. The promise is about what God will do. The law is about what you must do. Two very different principles. It can't be by faith and by works. It must be either by faith or by works. And Paul's making the argument that works have nothing to do with it. In fact, the moment we inject anything, again, we, we, you know, he, he, he talks about the law of Moses. In, in, the, in the present day, the law of Moses is not an issue for the church, right? But there's a whole host of things that are an issue for the church. You name it. Anything at all that is merged or attempted to be merged with faith nullifies the promise. You no longer have a gospel that can save. That's the issue. So the promise is about what God will do, while the law is about what I must do. And the difference between the promise and the law is quite evident from the vocabulary God uses when he first gave them. You recall that when he made the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God said what? You shall, you shall, you shall. That is the difference. The gospel is not about what you must do. It's about what God will do and has done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law and the promise operate on completely different ways. John Stott explains that difference as follows, and I quote, The promise, and he really summarizes this well, he says, The promise sets forth 
a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man. That's the difference. Man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise, standing from the grace of God, had only to be believed. But the law, standing on the works of men, had to be obeyed. Who has obeyed the law perfectly? Because that's what the law requires. Who? None but one. That's why when, when we talk about the gospel, we must never forget about the life of Christ. We typically talk about the incarnation. We talk about his death. We talk about, But it's important to speak of the life of Christ because it is his life, it is his perfect life that makes his death a propitiation. There was no sin of his own that he had to pay for. He died as a substitute for us. And when we say that the promise had to be believed, we're not meaning a belief that is, you know, just bare assent, but a firm, a trusting grasp of God in all that he has promised in Christ. Because we also have the issue in the church today of a gospel of what they call or they term easy believism. That's not what is being taught here. These two different principles, promise and law, are not on equal terms. One, according to Paul, has the priority. Within God's covenant of grace, it is the promise that takes precedence over the law. In other words, the law is secondary within the history of redemption, not primary. The law principle is subordinate to the promise principle. For one thing, what came first? The promise or the law? The promise. God gave Abraham the promise long before he gave Moses the law. And in keeping with the length of Israel's captivity in Egypt, 430 years, Paul says that the law came almost a half millennium later after the promise had been given. Uh, then you have those who argue, well, the law therefore superseded the promise. It came later, right? It, it somehow modified or changed. Well, that's not what Paul teaches. Uh, some might even say that the law supplemented the promise, which is precisely what the Judaizers were saying. They were not necessarily saying that the law superseded the promise, but that the law somehow supplemented the promise. They wanted to add something to faith. That is what modern-day religions do. They add something to faith which kills or nullifies the gospel altogether, at least the saving gospel. They wanted to add works to faith as a basis for their standing before God. In other words, they were trying to make the law an addendum to the promise. And that is exactly why Paul introduced this legal illustration. The promise to Abraham was an irrevocable covenant. It had the same status, if we think of it in human terms and in, 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 in legal terms today. It had the same status that a will has after it has gone through probate. There was no way. The words here are important. There was no way. Not that there was a way, but it was not taken. There was no way it could be invalidated. Once the covenant promise was made, it could not be invalidated. There was no way to invalidate it. The law could not replace the promise. Could not replace the promise. It could not even supplement the promise. Once God made the covenant, it can never be nullified, annulled, or added to. What does that mean? 
That means that the gospel has far more to do with Abraham than it has with Moses. The Judaizers, we all know, were very fond of Moses, which is why, in fact, they try to introduce a legalistic version of Christianity. And that's, that's exactly what we see today, a legalistic version of Christianity. They say that the law is necessary for the promise to be complete. It takes works to start or to finish what faith has begun. By the time the Judaizers were done with the Galatians, and by the time many evangelicals are done with many churches, and by the time they're done with many denominations, and by the time they're done with many Christian institutions, individuals in those churches, in those denominations, and in those educational institutions need to be literally reintroduced to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's what he was having to do here. That's the danger of that drip, drip, drip that eventually takes an individual, a group, down a path that they are no longer following what the Scripture teaches. I mean, for as far as justification is concerned, Paul says the law of Moses did not change the terms of God's promise. It's not like God had signed a covenant with Abraham and then later on changed his mind and introduced something different to change the original promise through Moses. That's not what happened. That was never the intention of the law. And the law did not accomplish that. And that's what he's saying. So besides, if, if the law had, some, had been necessary for salvation, would Abraham be saved? The law came 430 years after Abraham. If the law was necessary unto salvation, what would that say about Abraham? Since Abraham... In the time of Abraham, the law didn't even exist as, we, as it was introduced with Moses. The point that Paul is making is that Abraham was justified by faith, not by the law. The law wasn't even there. The law came almost half a millennium later. If the law was necessary, then how was Abraham justified? The point is, the law is not necessary. Abraham was justified just as we are justified today, by grace through faith in Christ. Abraham's salvation was not based on anything Abraham did. No more than your salvation is based on anything you did. The covenant did not establish any legal requirements that Abraham had to satisfy. The covenant has not established any legal requirements that we have to satisfy. It all came free. And we understand how we use the term free. The way an inheritance always does, doesn't it? God's covenant with Abraham came with no strings attached. No ifs, ands, or buts. The covenant was entirely a matter of promise. Received by faith. Now look at the conclusion of Paul's argument. Verse 18. For if the, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the way inheritance law always operates. A beneficiary, for those of you who have received an inheritance, you understand this. You've experienced this. And by that I simply say that as a beneficiary, you received an inheritance on the basis of a legal, a binding legal promise. If God has promised an inheritance, it must come by way of promise. If God has promised an inheritance, that inheritance must come by way of 
promise and not by works of the law. Which brings us back to the point Paul has been trying to make all through the letter. The point every single recovering Pharisee, and I mean that in the present time as well, every single recovering Pharisee needs to be clear on. God deals with us. Praise God. God deals with each of us according to his promise and not according to our performance. Can you imagine if he dealt with us according to our performance? None of us would be sitting in this auditorium. I would be standing here talking to you. God has dealt with me according to his promise. We are justified, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works. It was the same for the Galatians as it was for Abraham, and it's the same for us today. We are justified exactly the same way. And to see why this is so, it helps us to remember how promises work. We don't earn a promise. None of us earn a promise. It's impossible to earn a promise. The only way to receive a promise is to trust in it. Let me give you an example. The Hansons were so inclined to donate to me, to promise to me, to give me their beach house. What must I do to fulfill that promise? The only thing I can do is trust them to keep their promise or not, as the case may be. There's nothing I can do. It's the same when it comes to justification. What do I do to fulfill that promise? Receive it. There's nothing else I can do. So it is with the promises of God's covenant. Listen, only God can fulfill them. Therefore, when God promises salvation, there's nothing we can do on our end to bring fulfillment to that promise. God has to do it all. And that's the point of the covenant. In Romans chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, I'll read it to you. Listen to what Paul says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. In additional comments that Stop made about this particular passage we're looking at, he says, every sinner who trusts in Christ crucified for salvation, quite apart from any merit or good works, receives the blessing of eternal life and thus inherits the promise of God made to Abraham. As it was for Abraham, so it is for everybody who is in Christ. And that's why we must always intentionally and consciously be thankful to the Lord for what he has done. For had the Lord not done what he has done, we would be lost in our sin. And if the Lord does not continue to do what he has promised to continue to do, we would not be preserved in our faith. We would lose our salvation. What is the hope that is in us? What is it that we're looking forward to? And why are we so certain that that will be so? Because God promised it. So in summary, the salvation in Christ does not rest in the law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise, and this is in part why it's permanent and irrevocable. It rests on a promise that not even God can break. Once he made that promise, once he made that covenant, it is permanent and irrevocable. And therefore, we continue to share the gospel with others, knowing that the gospel is as valid today and tomorrow as it was a century ago or a millennia ago. It accomplishes the same thing in the lives that it's reaching and, 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 and to reconcile sinners because the promise 
continues to be fulfilled every time a person responds to that gospel. There is never a time, at least while we're still here on planet Earth, before the end of time as we know it, there will never be a time in which people are not being saved. Why? The promise is irrevocable and permanent. People will continue to be saved because the promise stands. So share the gospel so that people may come to know Christ and be heirs of that promise as we are.